0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana DeHanova, and I will be your host today. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer Holland, who is an assistant professor of U.S. history, specializing in histories of gender, sexuality, race, and conservatism in the North American West at the University of Oklahoma, and book review editor at the Journal of Women's History. We're discussing her 2020 book, Tiny You, a Western history of the anti-abortion movement. This book is the first history to truly reckon with the pro-life campaign for American hearts and minds, and I'm very excited to discuss it. Dr. Holland, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to talk to you about my book.
0: Yeah. Um, So to start off, could you talk a bit about your research background and where the idea for the project originated?
1: Sure. Um, So. I guess this is the long history of where the project came from, but I feel like it's necessary. So, I was a history major in college, but I took um, one particular class at the University of Michigan with uh, Dr. Regina Morant Sanchez. It was her women's history class. And I was just transformed by that class, decided I desperately needed to not only get a PhD in history, but uh, do women's and gender history. And she had assigned documents about feminism and anti-feminism once we got to it. And so when I did my master's degree at Utah State, I began sort of investigating this social conservatism, and I looked at the anti-ERA movement. Um, But once I went to go get my PhD at Wisconsin, I decided I wanted to do something else. Um, uh, Dr. Michael Lansing had been a mentor at Utah State, and he suggested that maybe I should think about um, the anti-abortion movement. And at First I thought I I couldn't because I felt like it was too close of an issue for me. I had been a reproductive rights activist in college and I just didn't know if I could sit with this topic for a decade. But it also, on the other hand, felt very important and personal to me in in a way that and meaningful. So um, I eventually took his advice. And I, when I was working with Susan Johnson at Wisconsin, I decided this was the issue I wanted to sort of pursue for the project. And then really some of my experiences with friends of mine really helped guide sort of some of the questions I asked. I, I had friends in college who you know, grew up Catholic and had really left many parts of their faith. Um, but the thing that they really couldn't let go of Um, that they had sort of learned in church was their anti-abortion convictions, you know, that they had seen The Silent Scream, um, this this powerful anti-abortion movie in Sunday school, and they just couldn't let it go. Um, You know, it just is so imprinted on their their psyche. Um, and, And so, you know, I was a reproductive rights activist, and my best friends were not activists, but anti-abortion in their lives. And that that sort of question is, you know, why that particular type of film, um, th- that t- that type of imagery really s- sat with people and stuck with people was sort of one of those things that really guided. Um, so sort of the questions I asked of the project once I got to it um, and I really sort of took uh, my, my gaze or sort of really was through social, social and cultural history to sort of get at some of the, the answers that I I hope the the book provides about that about why some Americans are just so transformed by this movement,
0: mm-hmm. um, absolutely. And I, I can relate to sort of um, as a fellow uh, longtime protest activist since college. And I remember my first time seeing the Silent Scream, and sort of I guess there's one of two reactions that people have to it, <laughs> right? right. Um, for horror in one way or another. Um, now, you start off the monograph by introducing Trent Franks, uh, a key American anti-abortion spokesperson. Uh, can you talk about who he was um, and what his role was in building the anti-abortion movement in the last decades of the 20th century?
1: Yeah. Uh, Trent Franks is such an interesting guy. And I think for a long time in American politics, he sort of has played the role of sort of the kooky right winger. um, And and by certain segments of, you know, sort of the American populace for a long time is just sort of written off um, that way. But I I really try to recenter him here and talk about him as really a person transformed by this movement. And then one that becomes a really important spokesperson and really speaks very much um, in the, the register of the movement. Like he really is the movement's voice First in Arizona's legislature for a couple of years, and then, of course, in the U.S. House in the early 21st century. Um, and he sort of comes up through the anti-abortion movement. He is transformed by a film that he probably witnesses in church, and then he, you know, he participate He works um, and and helps as an activist at a crisis pregnancy center. And even once he sort of voted out of the Arizona House, and he's in there from 1984 to 1986 he works in politics in Arizona, you know, sort of pushing a variety of anti-abortion measures. And he becomes sort of famous in the 21st century as a, as a representative, but also sort of these very, you know, these statements that seem very out, out of uh, sort of right field, I guess, if you want to say it, um, about sort of how African-Americans were, better off under slavery than they are in the late 20, in the 21st century, because um, because basically uh, legal abortion was decimating, killing more African-Americans than, than slavery was. And, you know, I think huge portions of the population sort of are stunned by this, right? But but it's actually very much in line with the arguments that the, the anti-abortion movement has been making for decades. Um, so Trent Franks isn't, I don't really put him up, and really the book is not about sort of individuals who lead and make you know these sort of powerful individuals i usually I use Franks to really speak about these spokespeople as representing decades of grassroots activism and and ideas that have been sort of um coursing throughout this movement across the country that spokespeople and especially people like Franks once the movement's successful at um electing, you know, ideologues that really speak to this movement and for this movement.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Now, uh, sort of related to this discussion of starting out as an activist and then making this your scholarly uh, work, um, in your introduction, you introduce a central argument of the book, which is that anti-abortion activists, quote, made the personal political to many white Americans. Uh, close quote, while for the activists themselves, it was the political that became personal. Um, and I think this is probably one of the most important things to understand about how this movement functions and how it became such a significant force in American politics. So, what does the personal becoming political and vice versa mean to you? Um, and can you give a brief overview of how you explore that here?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this was really a central argument that I came to that. I think encapsulates some of the broad trends I see happening over the 40 years I cover in the book. And what I saw happening was really the inverse of what a lot of um, early feminists did. And, and so, you know, one of the most transformative, um, slogans that feminists had was that that the personal was political, but it also was a manifestation of how feminism worked for a lot of women in the late 60s and 70s, which is that these problems that individual women had and that for so long had been considered a problem of, you know, sort of individual problems, individual personalities actually were common across Many women and thus they were not individual problems but potentially societal problems that had political answers right mm-hmm. um, but what I see, saw happening in the anti-abortion movement over these forty years was actually the inverse of that um, but as a power had as much of a powerful result in many ways that anti-abortion activists um, were not taking common experiences and giving them political meaning. But what I did see was activists making their politics, the the political abstraction that a fetus was equivalent to a born child. They made those politics a part of people's everyday experiences and integrated them into many people's intimate relationships and everyday spaces. And so they made those anti-abortion politics part of their everyday lives and made them feel personal and made anti-abortion politics feel essential to many Americans' sense of self. And so often, you know, a lot of anti-abortion activists didn't have any experience with abortion whatsoever, right? <laughs> um and, and so it wasn't, you know, later in the 80s you have this subset that does, but most didn't. Um, it was this sort of belief, this abstract belief Um, This political belief that then they sort of integrate, they infuse into people's church experiences and into school experiences and and really get people in in their everyday lives. And and it comes to feel very personal to them. Um, And I and I think that's sort of the success that the movement has in doing that explains why this issue came to be the only issue for some people the primary issue, the issue that nothing else could possibly matter besides this particular issue. Um, And this is this conundrum that so many historians of of conservatism have tried to wrap their head around, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That this doesn't feel like a a real issue, a bread and butter issue, something that really matters. So why does it matter um, to so many people above all other things, especially economic things, which you think Mm -hmm. might affect their lives more but but so this book tries to offer the answer right is why it becomes so central more important in some ways than economic policy which is seems like it would have a more daily impact on their life but um but i see it because this movement is just so powerful in getting in and transforming people's sense of self wrapping their identities around the fetus around issues of abortion politics
0: And this is something I see also. I think uh, the birth of the evangelical coreful movement, where people kind of base their religious, ethical, moral, national identity on having as many children as possible, because that is also kind of seen as an anti-abortion act. Right. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many ways in which certain, you know, tangential parts of this can become um, so infused with anti-abortion. Uh, politics right like even adoption right you can, mm-hmm. there's evangelicals come to think of adoption as sort of saving saving children who might you know giving this opportunity for for women who might have abortions to like give birth and, and then they could be adopted out and, and then also converted of course but mm-hmm. so many things if you can just tie it back in to abortion it can become it can take on this incredible moral weight um that in other cases might not
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm uh now, in terms of scope, the anti abortion movement has impacted the entire country but affected some regions more than others and here you focus on the mountain west, which is Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah, or as they're called the four corner states. How did you choose this region, and what is significant about how the movement functioned there?
1: um yeah, so this is uh yeah um, this like I said, this book is born from cultural history, social history. And, and because it's a a cultural history, I I really wasn't looking necessarily at um, where this movement, like making arguments about the movement sort of originating from a particular place or being strongest in a particular place. I really wanted to look at a place and see how the political culture that this movement develops um, really brought in some and excluded others how it really how it really did um, sort of affect the texture of people's everyday lives and I wanted to study a multiracial place and a people a place with a lot of religious people both white people and people of color who were religious um, and so you know the West is particularly um, is particularly rich in this multiracial not even you know, sort of biracial, but multiracial environments. I also wanted to look at part of the Sun Belt, which historians of conservatism have examined in depth, though mostly in sort of California, maybe a little bit in Arizona, Texas, places like that. But much of the Mountain West is largely um, unstudied in terms of thinking about the Sun Belt as a place of conservative transformations. Um, and what I really, what I really argued in the book is not that, you know, this was stronger or more innovative in in the Mountain West, but that the Mountain West was one of many regions, sort of in the middle of the country, mainly where these transformations had the greatest effect for a number of reasons. And so the Mountain West is alongside places like the South and the Plains and the Midwest, um, that these personal transformations, I, I, chronicle really are happening everywhere, as you say, um, and affect politics everywhere in one way or another. But in these middle regions, like the Mountain West, the South, the Plains, and the Midwest, you have enough conservative, religious white people, right, who embrace these politics that really shape both the texture of the communities they live in, and the politics of the communities and the states that they live in, um, that they really sort of they have enough of these people to change especially the partisan story of these regions so the mountain west of course like other regions shifts from being you know solidly democrat solidly blue um you know in the in sort of the, the 40s and really after to mm-hmm. solidly red by the 1970s but really the 80s um is where you start seeing really cl- like just very clear republican majorities not just in presidential elections but in um in sort of state politics in you know both state houses and and, um and houses and and this is just this massive transformation and i think for a long time historians of the west have mainly looked at sort of anti-communism or sort of this just anti-federal government sentiment in the west but i think that they have often ignored the power of religious people in these regions and the ways that the conservatism they embrace is actually very different and as important, if not more important to these partisan transformations in places like the mountain West, that it is, you know, sort of a rejection of the federal government potentially in terms of land use, but also in terms of abortion that helps change um, certain States uh, from, from Democrat to Republican.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think um, one of the reasons I think this book is so important is most most of the time when we think of uh, the American anti-abortion movement, I think we think of the South. Right. Um, and this is a very uh, you know, there's different kind of uh, processes happening, some of them having to do with the different religious dynamics of the region, which is something we'll get to in a little bit. Um, now, a significant element of your book is the 28 oral histories that you gathered from anti-abortion activists. Uh, can you talk about the process of, um, I guess, recruiting and interviewing your informants?
1: Yeah, um, the, this, these interviews are a big part of the primary source material. They're also, of course, like so many oral histories are, the most colorful and vibrant stories of the book come from these activists. I got to them through a couple of avenues. Um, One way was I had done a lot of archival research and then I would find people's names in the archive and then just sort of find some, you know, hopefully it was the right person and cold call, you know, Um, I did, I found them that way. I also called uh, anti-abortion organizations and told them I was a historian looking for people who had been in the movement for a long time. I really was looking for people who had been in the movement, at least in the 20th century, which is interesting that a lot of organizations, like really, sometimes you would get people who didn't know anyone who had worked in the in the movement before, you know, 2010, right? Um, there was a sort of a short memory, but, but some of them did know, right? Enough of them knew that they could send me to one or two people. And then of course, um, in both those cases, uh, if I got a hold of someone who was willing to talk, it would snowball into the next person because those people would remember other people, and um, and it would go on to the next person. Um, doing interviews was a one of the more challenging parts of this process for me, and I think that and um, there's a lot of conversations among historians about how to ethically how to ethically engage in oral histories, but I think so many. Of those conversations, um, assume a marginalized communities that you're taking from, and be communities where you at least believe yourself to be ideologically aligned with the people you're interviewing. Um, and that was really neither the case for me. Um, so I really tried to represent as you know you're you need to doing rural history. I need to to represent myself honestly but not in a way that would alienate them. Um, so, I, w- you know, I would sort of be straightforward that I was a scholar who was studying conservatism um, and, and thought that it was overly simplistic how, um, how scholars had treated them in the past. And I wanted to give a more well-rounded view, um, which was true. And eventually, I added also that you know I'm a part of a group of historians who are not conservative themselves but want to study conservatives. but inevitably, no matter what I told people about myself and about the project is that these activists often assumed I was one of them um, and I often wouldn't realize it until the middle of the interview and then have to figure out how to how to sort of correct them so that we remained honest with one another without again, alienating them. So, um, but also I, it, my, my ideological distance from them ended up was often, um, you know, it, it kept me from maybe taking them up on their most generous offers. Some offered that I could go to an anti-abortion conference or spend the summer with them with, in their basement, looking at papers. And I often just, um, couldn't. <laughs> it was just too challenging for me sometimes to be enmeshed all the time um, in a movement that I I so disagreed with. And most of the people I talked with were totally generous and totally nice. And I hope that when they read the book, they will find all of their stories um, represented accurately, even if we disagree on interpretation. But I, I do hope that for this book, um, because they really, it really wouldn't be what it is without them.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, my next question is kind of related to this. I think that terminology is really important to sort of how we identify ourselves and how we talk about um, our beliefs around these issues. Right. Um, and as anyone is, who's familiar with the abortion question in this country is aware, um, you know, we have these uh, the debate around the uses of quote pro-life and pro-choice, right? Yeah. So why is this a contentious topic? Um how did you decide when and how to use these terms in your book, where to use more neutral terms, uh, like but still political charged terms like abortion rights activists, anti-abortion activists, and so forth.
1: hmm Yeah, it's it's really contentious. Language matters so much um in this movement and in really on both sides, right? Um for a long time this idea that the for a long time um there was a belief, and I think this is still true, that if you use the term pro-life or pro-choice, that you are conceding those politics. And I think that is really reasonable. And I, I don't dismiss it, even though that's not the choices I make. Um and I think it might have been more salient to me. I made the decision to use the terms pro-life um, and pro-choice alongside more generalized general terms or less politicized terms, because I think that in 2020, those terms have become just so much a part of our common language that they, that it's hard not to use them. Um, And I don't think that, I, I, I think that, you know, sort of journalists have begun to make these, some of these same choices, but not all. Right. And at the same time, I make the decision not, ever to use, um, anti-abortion terminology, like, like the unborn, which is at least one other scholar decided to use it. And I think that is a, that's a concession I wasn't able to make. Um, but it, that felt very uncomfortable. It did feel like I would be acknowledging some core argument of the movement by using that term. Um, and I, I decided not to, um, I used fetus And I think this is this hard thing for scholars of abortion, because there's a certain number of historians who still want sort of clear and absolute objectivity. And there is just no middle ground. Like if you use fetus, it is a clear statement of your politics. If you use unborn, it is also a clear statement of your politics. And there's just no... There's just no middle ground, even though fetus is, of course, used by all, you know, all your doctors and all these things. Right. But but in the term, in the in the language of abortion politics, it's sort of either or, you know. Um, And so there's no way to fully um, to fully separate yourself from that. Mm -hmm. So um, I use all all these terms, you know, Pro life, pro choice, abortion rights, abortion reform, anti-abortion activists. I use all of those because I think they're so much a part of our common um, our common uh, language. Um, I don't use some of the ones that are less common and use very exclusively in activist circles, um, like anti-choice and Mm -hmm. um, in the anti-abortion worldview. I think it's like pro-death or you know things like that. I just
0: yeah yeah Yeah. another one right.
1: Yeah, I don't use any of those. Um, so, so this, it's hard, you know, and I don't think there's a clear answer, but always in sort of peer review and all these, I, you know, you really get people's strong opinions <laughs> about, about these stories, that you are conceding too much, right? Or you're not being objective enough. Um, and there's, it's a hard, it's a really hard line to walk as a scholar in terms of this language, because the language matters so much to these movements. It does.
0: Mhm mhm absolutely um and another really important term here in language but also just conceptually is the understanding of morality right so you write about how the anti-abortion movement succeeded in making morality synonymous with an anti-abortion position so how did they do that
1: yeah um and i think this is this incredibly successful move that the that the anti-abortion um you know, anti abortion activists have really made, and really made over the course of multiple decades of work, right, of course. But it's not only a claim to having the moral position, the only moral position, but this has always been the case, right, that this is an ahistorical moral position, that everyone who ever was moral or ever was religious um, believed this to be true. And of course, that, that is absolutely not the case, that this was a product, this this belief is a product of a political process over decades of work. And what I argue in the book is that, especially in the 1970s, you have a, a lot of white Christians in certain denominations, more so than others, who have anti-ab- anti-abortion politics integrated into their experiences of faith, that it really become, that activists um, really infuse politics into rituals, right? And and that that certain Christians began to experience these politics in their rituals of faith, in their um, houses of faith, right? Their houses of worship in a way that they didn't before. And I I think this is true even for Catholics. And of course, Catholics, this was early on considered a Catholic movement. And Catholics really were the, the primary activists for a long time in this movement, um, but even, uh, this process is even true for Catholics. And this isn't to say that, that Catholics in the mid-20th century wouldn't have thought abortion was wrong or a sin, but they just wouldn't have seen it in their churches on a daily basis or on a weekly basis or on a regular basis, right? just, they would have been a the thing they know, but they probably, they would have heard much more um, about the church's opposition to birth control than to abortion, of course, because that was, um a more pressing issue when abortion is more fully illegal but they just mm-hmm. wouldn't have had this kind of um you know sermons from uh, on Sunday right and and all of these rituals of the faith that become also political rituals in the 70s that Catholics might have known but they wouldn't have experienced it that it was quite so central to their their uh, identities as Catholics but the the group of anti-abortion activists who are Catholics push, um, push, if they had reluctant priests, they push their reluctant priests or bishops to not just say now and again anti-abortion things, but really push them to make it central. And they often succeeded at that. And of course, later, they, uh, anti-abortion activists in evangelical faiths and also Mormons have that same practice. And it, of course, it's intermittently in many other um, denominations, a variety of Protestants, depending on who your, your minister was. Right. But, mm-hmm. but Mormons and evangelicals and Catholics, they all have these politics really integrated into their daily experiences. And that allows for the collapsing of Christianity and morality with anti-abortion politics. Mm -hmm. And what this does really is it it erases a much more complicated past and not even a far past, right? That, you know, in the, in the late sixties and early seventies, you have uh, the clergy consultation service, which was this group of priests and ministers and rabbis who counseled women about how to access safe abortions and helped get them illegal abortions often or get them to a place they could get legal abortions. And you have this, huge group of people, of of ministers who are, and rabbis who are saying, this is a moral choice, and it's one that is best decided by a woman. And, and that just is totally erased um, mm-hmm. over the subsequent decades, that any sort of people of faith would sort of be that outspoken. And it also erases the fact that evangelicals, at least evangelical leaders, um, were not antagonistic to the reform of abortion laws and even supported Roe in openly um okay. until 1976 that's a, a, no one remember no one at least in our in a cultural sense remembers that even evangelicals um were not clear in the 1970s as a group about the immorality of abortion in all cases
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. uh, When I was an undergraduate, I worked uh, for a while for the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, just a small organization. Um, And I actually used to teach a workshop (laughs) at my college called What Does the Bible Say About Abortion? Which it was a bit of a bait and switch, because then when people came, I would explain that there's really no kind of straight answer. And I talked about all of this kind of religious history. But I think um, this was in the early 2000s. And by then, people absolutely, Bush years, uh, very much believed that uh, Christian, particularly Christian, equals anti-abortion. Abortion.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and this is just, i it's amazing how successful, um, how successful the movement was. And often ab- about even erasing, of course, there are continue to be religious voices supporting choice and reproductive rights, but they are just so, have been so sidelined in terms of the story that Americans believe about abortion, um, because of this activism, I think. Mm
0: hmm. Um you mentioned uh that th- there was obviously uh overlap between the extant anti-birth control movement and the kind of emerging anti-abortion movement. So how did the first one impact the second?
1: Sorry, say that again. The anti the anti-birth control movement? Yeah, so how did it
0: impact the uh development, the early development of the anti-abortion movement in the 70s? Yeah,
1: so it the anti-abortion movement um was very much an, an extension of the anti-birth control movement and again this is a part of um, the story of the anti-abortion movement that has been erased in many ways um, anti-abortion activists really relied on um, arguments that had been made um, in anti anti-birth control circles mm-hmm. um, and and they are really trying out arguments anti-birth control, uh, activists are really trying out arguments that then anti-abortion activists, who sometimes were the same people, um, would pull the parts that were successful and still worked in the '70s and onward, and and, and make them um, and, and sort of use them again. But they also erase it because, of course, birth control th- these origins because birth control. Uh, became co- so commonly accepted even among Catholics that eventually they sort of had to distance themselves from those politics. And only when pressed would say they're also against birth control because, um, it's, it sort of made it, you know, seem a little more fringy, a little, a uh, little less common sense, at least according to them. But, they try, a lot of the arguments they try out, especially in the 60s against birth control, and especially as birth control is becoming more widely available, would really undergird a lot of anti-abortion arguments. So um, they w- they really tried to equate uh, government allowing access to birth control to the government coercing women into using birth control. And there was a real slippage um, that activists really um, – pushed, right? That access inherently was coercion from the state. Um, Also that that this, you know, in the 60s, you really see very clearly in anti-birth control that they are very much worried about promiscuity and worried that the state allowing for more access to a whole host of reproductive services would allow women to have sex outside the home and undermine the nuclear family and all of these. Now that's the part that very much is in the sixties birth control debates, but anti-abortion activists slowly have to at least hide a little bit because it doesn't sell quite as much, um, in a, in a world sort of remade by, by feminism, but, but they really do work, um, work out some of these, uh, these ideas in, in, birth control debate. So they work out this idea. Um, one of my favorite activists, anti-abortion activists here in the 60s, he he talks about the contraceptive mind a lot, um, mm-hmm. this contagious condition, right? That this would lead society to demonize children um, and, and accept abortion and, and lead to acceptance of more different kinds of murder, right? And eventually moral chaos. And of course, mm-hmm. that slippery slope Of accepting, sort of limiting one's reproduction into devaluing children and devaluing the elderly. Like that is essential to the anti abortion argument, um, that there's a slippery slope into um, just caring not at all about life in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, And you also, in the 60s, see uh, anti abortion activists are trying to figure out what their analogies are to the US South. And you have activists sometimes saying that they are like civil rights activists and other times saying that they are like um you know the defeated confederates where the north is invading and that the federal government's oppressing them and disregarding the constitution and so in the 60s you see anti-birth control activists are trying to work out they both are looking to the south and the south's history but they're trying to figure out which which one are they the white confederates (laughs) Or are they black civil rights activists, you know, par- in parallel? And of course, by the time you get into the 70s, they they figure out that it's the civil rights activists who are the more compelling parallels. And they sort of excise the um, white Confederate parallels, at least mostly in the, in the narrative. Um, but you see them sort of building some ideas, but also this trial and error in the 60s that really, you can see the anti-abortion movements of calling out the things that don't, work as well and hiding the things that are less popular and sort of repackaging for for the 1970s in in a different kind of way.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Um and now in terms of this repackaging, I think another argument that was developed a little bit later was the idea that making abortion uh, legal harms women, right? And that yeah. anti I'm sorry I'm- have to reverse that, right? The idea is that if when abortion is legal that harms women, right? Um and many anti-abortion activists say that um theirs is a true pro woman position. Right. So for example, you write about the development of the notion that abortion is traumatic for the pregnant woman and that women who have had an abortion suffer from PTSD and require counseling. Yeah. Um can we talk a bit about how this argument is made.
1: Yeah. So, and this is one of these, um, some of what I've been talking about mainly are are ideas sort of are generated right at the beginning in the late 60s and 70s. But this is really an innovation of um, sort of the late 70s and 80s, when I think there's this big transition where um, anti-abortion activists sort of realize that fetuses and Christians are sort of not victims enough. And they've got to sort of figure out other victims they can sort of tie into this bundle um victims of abortion who who can make clear the, the stakes of this and and one of the most powerful and I think has proven to be one of the most compelling arguments they make for a whole host of people um is this idea that abortion harms women um and they made it in sort of minor ways throughout the seventies, but they they repackage it as a as a psychological as a syndrome. Right um, in the in the early 80s, and this is of course a moment where Americans generally are more aware of PTSD because of um, media around Vietnam vets. But in 1981, a psychotherapist named Vincent Rue, he coined this term post-abortion syndrome during a congressional hearing, and then um, mm-hmm. anti-abortion activists who also were psychologists uh, sort of take it up and start talking about sort of abortion damaged women. And they helped diagnose this. So it's post-abortion syndrome or post-abortion stress, this idea that women would sort of were traumatized by their abortion and they sort of re-experience it um, through hallucinations and nightmares. And, and it, this would just be this, uh, this problem for them throughout their lives unless they dealt with it. Now, I want to be clear that the American Medical Association and the American Psychological Association vociferously denied that this was a real medical syndrome Um, that studies that they did, you know, um, showed that mostly in large part um, psychological stress was greater before abortions um, rather than after. And yet sort of anti-abortion activists disregard this um, say that, you know, these people are ignoring the real trauma that abortion is causing and it allows them to shift the movement away from the, the, the belief that it was anti-woman, which they're constantly, throughout these years, are constantly having to uh, wrestle with, you know, that um, they really, this is a way for them to shift the goalposts away from this debate between rights of women and rights of fetuses towards what they see as abortions bad for everybody. Um, and, And so they're developing this diagnosis, but it's all hypothetical until it's actually you know, put into practice, and one of the places they really put this into practice in a real way is in crisis pregnancy centers, which mm-hmm. were had existed since the late sixties and early seventies. They mainly they sort of masqueraded as abortion clinics, and they would sort of try to get a woman who was looking for an abortion in the door, thinking they were there for an abortion, but then give them the anti-abortion pitch. Um, you know, show videos, show all sorts of things, and, and try to stop them right? From having an abortion. But by the 1980s, these crisis pregnancy centers are feeling like they're not having enough of an impact and they re-envision themselves. And one way is that they, they become centers for what they call post-abortion counseling. So bringing this diagnosis and trying to counsel women who've had abortions into seeing abortion as the source of their trauma. Um, and this is, I, I think really, um, You know they're sort of borrowing here in many ways, not only from therapy but also from feminist consciousness raising. Um, But it's really different than feminist consciousness raising because consciousness raising um, wasn't uh, was very open ended. It sort of allowed women to find commonalities together, Um, and and post abortion counseling in these crisis pregnancy centers was very much guided by anti abortion activists towards the endpoints that always were there and they had to reach, which was abortion was the origin of all of your problems, and that this was the origin of all your hurts and traumas and um and these you know reading these manuals that help crisis pregnancy center activists um, do this work is pretty intense um you know. They really encouraged groups working together that this wasn't a one-on-one counseling because they really thought that, um, that the group would build on the emotion of um, build on the emotion of the other people involved and that they would um, sort of tailgate is what they call it. And um, so they, they really have these very guided, um, you know, sort of, Uh, questions to help women they are like and they don't they don't say they're going to speak for god but they want those women to role play through damaged relationships so they say things like heidi can you tell god who it is that you killed or heidi can you ask god to forgive you for killing Brittany?" um and, and this would supposedly lead to this woman's confession please god forgive me for killing my baby um And this was um, and then hopefully, right, especially if they were holding a doll or a fetus doll and that they would sort of externalize their their trauma and and really focus it on this doll and, and come to the realization that abortion was murder, that they had created that they had transgressed in this incredible way. And that, you know, because these counselors were anti-abortion activists, because they were Christians, they believed deeply that this would lead to emotional well-being, this this acknowledgement, right, that it would be a release for um, these women who felt hurting potentially in some kind of way, felt hurt. Um, but this is really this in- crisis pregnancy centers aren't the only place that do this kind of counseling. Actually, Catholic churches become also um, center you know, these centers to do this kind of work, but it is really um, transformative work for a lot, for a certain subset of women who come into um, into their worldview, that they really do come to think of all of their problems in life as stemming from their abortion. And then they become activists, and these incredibly important activists who then can say, abortion hurts women, and I'm going to go tell my legislature about it. Right. Um, and, and I can prove that it's not just fetuses, but it's women that that are hurt by abortion because I've i been hurt. And, you know, I, I learned this. I, I understood this finally. Um, once once I was sort of talked through, you know, this post-abortion counseling um, at my local crisis pregnancy center or a retreat or my local church. Um, but it's this incredibly powerful argument that even, um, Supreme court justices have started to echo. So it is incredibly successful. This particular argument, um, that, that maybe abortion does not help women, but having access to abortion actually hurts women and it doesn't help them.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, I, I think their organization is called feminists for life and their tagline at least used to be women deserve better than abortion. Right. right? So it's a very, very kind of specific, uh, arranging of, of the terms. Um, And you mentioned this before, um, but can you talk a little bit more about the racial elements of the anti-abortion movement and particularly the relationship between, on the one hand, predominantly white activist cadres and on the other hand, communities of color um, and how that also relates to issues like class?
1: Yeah, Uh, this was a big question I had um, entering this project was the role of race in this movement. So often histories of conservatism are sort of split between social conservatism histories of social conservatism that are interested in gender and sexuality and um, issues around the size of government and um, segregation and suburbanization that all have to do with race. But I really wanted, I, I, I believe that there was a story here and I needed to figure out what it was um, because this is an overwhelmingly white movement, as you say, and it's one that casts itself as a civil rights movement and often a movement that will save people of color. Um, and this is this movement, like with um, the post-abortion syndrome, where you have social conservatives, social conservatives, co-opting liberal rhetoric, um, and and I think that this is makes it. I think that this is sort of the reason why um, anti-abortion uh, activism, the anti-abortion movement, outlasts other socially other socially conservative. Um, issues, other cultural war issues, because ultimately civil rights is a more compelling rhetoric than liberty for, for at least late 20th century Americans. It is. Um, and so what they say is that, um, you know, a legal abortion is like Jim Crow. It's like slavery in that abortion devalues life. It creates hi- social hierarchies between people. Um, they also say, of course, that um, it's like the Jewish Holocaust that this is mm-hmm. a holocaust in the united States um and they for most of for the twentieth century at least they really do not do much outreach. they use the the narratives of people of color and religious minorities, but they do not actually reach out to them to incorporate them. They sort of think that they will just naturally come to them because they're using this language right um and I always asked all my interviewees, like, why, you know, why aren't there more people of color in this movement, especially in largely Catholic communities where you have a lot of ethnic Mexican Catholics who are hearing the same story in their Catholic churches? Why aren't they a part of the movement? And activists, they just didn't know. They just had no idea. They just said, I don't know. That's a really good question. <laughs> but, uh, but so the answers I really came to were, um, you know, in that that gap. of, of, you know, the activists themselves not having answers was that the movement always was about um, co-opting, but also hierarchizing these oppressions, right? It wasn't just like slavery. It wasn't just like the Jewish Holocaust. It was worse than, than all of these things, right? That the death tolls were larger, that it was worse because fetuses were innocent in a way that any born person couldn't be. Right, that there was some element of personal responsibility that a born person has that a fetus simply doesn't have, and so, so it's like these things, but worse. And I think that that really creates, um, and, and thus also that needed to be. Activists often say this is really the primary issue of social hierarchies that needs to be dealt with, and then just everything else will flow from it. Right, if abortion mm-hmm. mentality is um, this basically the same as racism, then if you get rid of legal abortion then basically racism will end, right? And of course, any most people of color who've experienced racism, I think that that would have been a very um, unsatisfying answer, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so there's this friction for, especially in the 70s and 80s, where you have movements who are really politicizing um, people, right, the Chicano movement are really tackling much more deeply um, structural, systematic, and cultural problems around racism. And then you have this very white conservative movement who's sort of taking from maybe appealing in certain ways, but also saying, well, the real problem you have here is legal abortion. And that simply is, unsubith- is just not very compelling. In the 21st century, I think the anti-abortion, which I don't really talk about much in the book, but I think that anti-abortion movement in the 21st century has done a lot more outreach, especially to black communities, um, to try like much more, you know, sort of focused, Efforts to um, create media and speak to Black communities—I think they've had a little bit more success in the 21st century, but it still remains an incredibly white movement. And I think because even if you incorporate more sort of um, discussion of sterilization um, and things like that, it, it's still it's still that the the same arguments remain, right? Which is that these are hierarchies that abortion really is the primary problem. Um, And and that that feminists, the federal government, um, these elites are sort of trying to undermine you. And and that's really the problem. So Mm -hmm. I think that they, that, that's sort of their, their core relationship here is like co-option. And then, um, and that's, they, they really sell them. That sells well to uh, white people, right. But really does not sell that well um, to people of color, even the ones who, who, because of their religious views might've been sympathetic, that they might even have, believed abortion was murder, but they just don't join. They don't vote, right? These are not Mm -hmm. activists. And that's a big difference.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, alongside with this being being quite a white movement, it's also quite a heavily religious movement, as you mentioned. Um, I'm wondering, to what extent has the movement contributed maybe to interdenominational tensions and also tensions or else strengthening religious communities, such as the American Catholics or the uh, LDS? Uh Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, um so these it is a very religious movement and it is an interdenominational one. Um and I and also our, it's it's a combination of religious people who are also very who believe individual like in within their dom- denominations do have a um, a monopoly on truth, right? So it's not just that it's interdenominational, it's that you have these people who really do not want to dilute their um their their beliefs and do not want to concede that other um, other groups could potentially, you know, be a separate path um, to salvation. Mm -hmm. And yet they are an incredibly powerful um, ecumenical uh, group, which is sort of amazing that they, they, uh, they sort of don't speak about the things that, that would, um, often they, they don't, they somehow overcome, um, the things that really would, uh, would drive wedges between them, at least often, often enough to be successful. Um, and, and they really can come around this issue that abortion is, um, is a moral Christian issue. And on that issue, they are able to sort of come together and work together in really powerful ways. Now that is not to say there isn't tension and these tensions. are Um, important in, in certain, in in certain moments, right? The role of trying to convert, um, is one of those issues that, that is very important and a divisive issue. Like in crisis pregnancy centers, when a woman comes and you're trying to talk her out of abortion, do you also use that moment as a opportunity to, um, you know, uh, evangelize to her. Right.
0: Um, Mm -hmm.
1: and, and Catholics often say no. Uh, that you would, you might allow that Jesus might come into the into the the moment if if it's possible, but, but you don't do anything that might alienate her. Whereas evangelicals are much more likely to say, "Yes, this is this opportunity. She, you know, yeah. she's she's vulnerable in a certain kind of way. This is this this moral reckoning, and it's an opportunity." And so, a, certain crisis pregnancy centers in certain cities, um, this has become a major issue. But generally, I think, and th- I think it's perhaps more important that these denominations which have really hated each other for a long time are actually able to overcome, um, some of those, those divisions enough to build this incredibly powerful political coalition, um, and, and, and work together and even see value at times in each other's religious traditions, right. Even if they don't acknowledge that they're, um, equal, uh, in terms of, um, their, their, Monopoly on truth, right? But like, but there is some value to what they're doing, especially when it is in service of of the movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so. the architects of the anti-abortion movement, I think, understand quite well the adage that a picture speaks a thousand words, right? And visuals, specifically fetal images, have therefore been very important in spreading their message. Um, So could you talk a bit about how they've been designed and disseminated um, and used as part of the uh, spectacle aspect of the movement, things like protests and symbolic mass funerals?
1: Yeah. This is... um these, this ephemera of the movement is really central to the book. It's on the cover of the book. It's throughout the book. It's these are and these are also it, the power of these images and these other sort of tools like fetus dolls, They're just they learn them really from the anti pornography movement. This, this power of having something at hand that you sort of both desire and abhor, right, and that you can sort of take it with you wherever you go, that you could show it on a college campus, but also you could sort of whip it out of your pocket in case of um, a moral emergency, right? Um, That uh, Trent Franks can wear his, his pin that is a very famous pin called precious feet. It's a feet, supposedly feet of a 10 week old fetus. And, And you can wear that around. And then when someone asks you about it, you can use this as an opportunity, right. To, to explain your politics and try to convert anyone right to sort of um to your way of lo- to, to your way of thinking um and and i think the ways and so many feminist scholars have have talked about how powerful these are because they are separate from um the woman's body right that they sort of dismiss the connection between fetus and and woman and um, they are they are separate from it but the thing that i really focus on is how how these um these items uh circulate and become a part of people's everyday lives. I I remember I did an interview where a young woman walked in with her young child. The child was probably four and rather than a baby doll, her her daughter was carrying a a fetus doll. Right. Mm -hmm. And she said her daughter had no baby dolls. They were all fetus dolls because she wanted her daughter to know that fetuses were, were babies. Right. And and Mm -hmm. think about how compelling, what, what that means to tell a child from very early on that fetuses and children are one of the same, and that you could only have fetus dolls. Um, mm-hmm. That this was this incredibly powerful political argument that just became, came like water, right? That you just sort of swam in it and didn't know that it, there was any other option, right? And and the movement's just so successful at, at, at spreading their ideas in this way, right? Spreading it through these materials through these pictures that people just cannot escape. You just cannot escape it in American culture, and especially if you're in these communities who are politicized. Um, you know these types of churches, um, these types of uh, if you live in particularly conservative communities, you just cannot avoid them. And with those, it you know people it doesn't you don't automatically come to believe anti-abortion beliefs if you see them, but you see them over and over, and those arguments for the right person can really become compelling, right? Um, and and become arguments that feel like common sense and feel like central to understanding who they are too. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think that these, these items, I mean, this is one of these other ways that I think this movement is very distinct from other. I don't, I can't think of another movement that does, um, this kind of work as well about using these images, these like films, dolls, you know, just sort of all of these things, right. To, to sort of convey that and really infuse people's life with, with their politics, with these politics.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so speaking of that and sort of this um quite successful uh, infusion uh, of the culture. You write that, um, in your view, anti-abortion activists have won the American culture wars, even though they've not succeeded in their ultimate aim, which is overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, So what are some of the biggest successes that you've seen in the movement in the last decade?
1: Uh, Well, in the last decade? Oh, man. Um, They've been incredibly successful in the last decade. I mean, these are successes that have been building for a long time. Um, Of course, the, the movement has long been divided amount about whether or not you pursue um, only policies which will ban it out, uh, ban the procedure outright, or whether, you know, you pursue strategies of erosion through mm-hmm. um, banning certain types of procedures. But it seems like the people have won for the most part have been those who have just eroded um, these, these chipping away at um, mm-hmm. uh, making it much harder, almost impossible to get. And they have just, anti-abortion activists have done this. They've done this already um, in sort of, Making it just creating this maze of um, of of uh, these many many hurdles that women have to overcome in order to access their constitutional right to abortion. It's it's very hard in many states, um, and and uh, and this is really um, a massive success that they have done this by politicizing. A whole host of people, and then getting people elected who are willing to put these um, these uh, laws into practice. And for a long time, anti-abortion activists uh, got Republican—you know—they gave their vote to Republicans who would say the right thing during the during the election, but then not really do anything. Right? Ronald Reagan fits in this category for the most part. People like him, but by the late '90s and the early 1000s, anti-abortion activists have too much power to let this be and they say we are not going to elect people who are not um who are not going to follow through once in office and so in the 21st century you really have anti-abortion activists successfully electing ideologues who it and it and it doesn't matter really what else they do or who else they are in many ways um as we see um in our as long as they are willing to toe the anti-abortion line not only in words, but in, in laws. And even if those laws are unconstitutional and the Supreme court keeps kicking them down, hopefully one will stick. And I think that we see now um, the, the long-term strategy and how successful that that will be because of course they finally got a president who was willing to get a Supreme court justice in there, who who clearly is hostile to um, Roe and hostile to abortion rights. And they're, you know, of course, this case that is up on the Supreme Court right now, which is just the same case, basically, that they just struck down a couple of years before, but with a new court, they hope that they'll get a different answer. Um, and I think that they have been successful, and I think they are approaching um, their their ultimate success one way or another. Either the court will, I think, they'll either uphold the Louisiana law that's up for, um, up for up, uh, on the docket, um, which means that they'll... Uh, allow even more onerous restrictions on abortion providers and and huge, huge numbers of States, I think will have no abortion provider after that. Um, Or potentially they will overturn Roe altogether. It it could be Mm -hmm. one or the other, I think, Um, whether it's just letting Roe die by a thousand cuts or overturning it. But I think that will be the outcome um, in the next year. Um, And I think that this of course is what, um, what activists have, long, long sought. And, and they haven't overturned Roe, but they might. And even if they don't fully overturn Roe, they will make uh, abortion functionally illegal in huge swaths of the United States. Um, and really go back to the time where geography mattered, money mattered. Uh, both of these things already are true, but they will be even more true. That if you live in California, and New York, you will have access to abortion. If you live in Oklahoma, you will not. And Louisiana and Texas, right? That these are yeah. places that will not have any access to abortion in
0: many mm-hmm. of the
1: same ways that it was in the late '60s and early '70s before before Roe.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, uh, sadly, I have to I have to say I do agree with you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I think that's why on the um, pro-choice side, the a lot of the conversation, um, especially I think in the last 20 years, even hasn't been around so much uh, Roe as about just uh, maintaining access in the states.
1: Right. Yeah. And the other thing, and this is sort of, I, I, there's no uplifting end to this story. I'm sorry to say, but I also think that the future is, you know, people worry so much about going back to the, before abortion was made legal or more legal, um, this moment of, of, uh, coat hangers and illegal abortions. And we already are there to a certain extent, but I also think that that future time of illegality is going to be worse. Because as other historians have shown, that women suffered greatly before Roe, you know, they, they were subject to very deadly procedures, illegal procedures, but they also um, often were not prosecuted for murder, right? That abortion providers were prosecuted when caught, mm-hmm. but women weren't really prosecuted. They, they suffered and were traumatized and died for a lot of other reasons, but that really wasn't one way. But that doesn't make sense anymore. That doesn't make sense for a movement that has claimed for 40 years that abortion is murder. And they've convinced so many people that abortion is murder. Um, no matter how much they say that women are, are victims of abortion, that does not make sense. If you hire someone to commit a murder, you are guilty of murder. in, in other mm-hmm. cases, that wouldn't make any sense for abortion to be any different. And you see in some of these recent state laws Um, that are not, have been ruled unconstitutional or will be ruled unconstitutional hypothetically if they follow the current um, legal standard, that that they also do, some of them do not exempt women from prosecution. Not that abortion providers should be prosecuted at all, but that women are not exempted. Women, they might claim that women are are victims of abortion, but they are going to be exempted. That a lot Mm -hmm. of these do not have rape and incest exemptions, which was sort of common sense in the late 60s that you should be able to get an abortion. In, in cases of rape and incest, a lot of these laws do not, and there's no reason to think they should, because if a fetus is a person from the moment of conception, it does not matter um, how that person was made. And so I think we are facing a future that is in many ways worse than the late '60s.
0: Absolutely, and especially with with surveillance state and all of that. Right. Yeah. So listeners, I wish we could give you a more positive
1: outlook, but I, I think know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: Um, so to wrap up, um, could you tell us what you're currently working on?
1: Oh man. Um, to be honest, I have, I find this work so important and powerful. Um, but it's very hard to work, um, in this, to always work on something that feels this, I guess, relevant or something, that it feels so, um, so, uh, pressured and sad and so a part of our moment. And so I, I actually want to move back a little bit to the 20th century and work on dead people. <laughs> like so many historians get to, um, I am plan. I am hoping to, to write, uh, uh, my next book about the early 20th century and, um, and sort of the, sort of the way that sexuality is explored in the, the prohibition era before the prohibition amendment in the West and how, how women sort of, um, expand notions of, of normal sexualities in illegal drinking spaces in the West. So it's very different than this. But and I might change my mind. I might come back to um, to the late 20th century and, and feminism and anti-feminism. But right now, I I sort of want the the comfort of the the long past and change that I can see hope in. Because um, sometimes this is it's hard to see hope in these stories.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for listening to new books and gender studies on the New Books Network. Today, I've been speaking with Dr. Jennifer Holland, assistant professor of U.S. history at the University of Oklahoma, about her 2020 book, Tiny You, a Western history of the anti-abortion movement, now available from the University of California Press. Dr. Holland, thank you for doing this important work. And thank you again for joining me. Thank you.